Welcome. And hi, everybody. I am Rachel Levy-Lesser. And I am Stephanie Goldstein. And this is Life's Accessories, a podcast about accessories, clothing, fashion, and the stories behind them. We are two friends who love to accessorize and remember what we wore on pretty much every meaningful occasion. And that is what we love to talk about. You can follow us on Instagram at Life's Accessories Podcast and also on Facebook and TikTok. And if you like what you're listening to, we'd love it if you could rate us, review us, share with a friend, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Today, we are speaking with a very special guest, author Joanna Rakoff. And before we hear about the special item from Joanna's closet, Rachel's going to share a little bit about Joanna. Okay. Well, this is Joanna's official bio, which I know it's sometimes hard to hear your bio read, but bear with us. Here we go. Here we go. So Joanna Rakoff is the author of the international bestselling memoir, My Salinger Year, and the bestselling novel, A Fortunate Age, winner of the Goldberg Prize for Fiction and the L Reader's Prize. Joanna's books have been translated into 20 languages and the film adaptation of My Salinger Year, which I loved, stars Margaret Qualley as Joanna and Sigourney Weaver as her boss. It's, it was in the theaters worldwide and in 2021, it's now streaming. Joanna has been the recipient of fellowships and residencies from McDowell, Sewanee, Breadloaf, Jerome Foundation, Authors Guild, Penn, Ragdale Foundation, Art, Ami, Letting House, and Salt and Stall. I hope I'm not butchering any of that. Um, she's taught at Columbia <laughs> University, Brooklyn College, and Aspen Woods. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, O, The Oprah Magazine, Vogue, Elle, Porter, and Elsewhere. And her new memoir, The Fifth Passenger, is forthcoming from Little Brown in 2024. Can't wait for that book. Welcome, welcome, Joanna. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you. And tell us, what do you have from your closet? So this was a really, really (laughs) hard decision for me. I don't know if it is for most of your guests. Um, but I, you know, have always been a huge fashion person. Um, even as a child, um, there were lots of battles with my mom about like my only wanting to wear, you know, like embroidered dresses and what have you (laughs) to school rather than jeans and whatever. So it was really hard for me to figure out what to talk about, but I, um, I am initially, um, decided on what I stuck with, which is, um, a dress that um is ostensibly not that special like it's not the most gorgeous special um exciting dress in my closet it's not even in my closet anymore it's actually in my basement in my memorabilia box and this is probably why I chose it because I've worn it so many times that it's no longer wearable I'm wearing it now and you can see the top of it but if you saw me in person you would see that it's like the fabric has actually disintegrated in places and it's covered in stains. Um, And, you know, there was a point where actually, to be honest, like my husband said to me, you can't wear that anymore. You know, I love that dress, but you can't wear it anymore. Um, And it, it, should I describe it or? Yeah. And you know, we'll we'll post a picture later from the top part because it's very cool and colorful. And by the way, I love that you have a memorabilia box in your basement where you store. Yeah. I want to hear, I want to hear about that too. Yeah. I have them for every member of my family. Um, But So the dress is um, made by a Finnish designer um, called Ivana of Helsinki. Okay. Um, And, you know, here's a fun fact. There's actually a huge sort of fashion universe in 
um, Finland. It's very, very kind of like almost like avant-garde fashion area. There's so many exciting Finnish fashion designers, most of whom you can't access in the U.S. Um, maybe you could access them for some from some like obscure website paying like a zillion dollars for shipping. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of like kind of cutting edge design in Finland in general and the sort of fashion world reflects that. I'm sure everyone is familiar with Mary Mekko. Um, yes. And so mm-hmm. that Mary Mekko is like the one brand that we know here. Um, the dress that I'm wearing, um, my husband, who's a big design aficionado, believes that this is um, a Mary Mekko print. I don't actually know if it is. Oh my gosh. But the thing is that we know Mary Mekko here in the US. Yeah. Um, and for listeners who aren't familiar with it, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. They're a Finnish textile design company that makes these kind of like bold patterns that you you can sort of once you know what they are you recognize them instantly um they also make housewares with these designs and they have like a signature flower design that comes in red yes. and blue that i think i had the placemats we used to have the placemats yeah yes the, i yes, remember and, tablecloths growing yeah, up yeah we had <laughs> exactly. all that exactly and if anyone listening grew up in um the Cambridge area, Mary Mecco initially, I don't know why I'm giving you like a Mary Mecco history lesson, but Mary Mecco right. initially um, came to the U.S. through um, the design world in Cambridge, which was largely um, Jewish refugees who emigres who you know were fleeing Hitler in the 20s and mm. 30s who came to the U.S. and there was this whole design world here and they brought all sorts of exciting um, furniture, designers, textile designers, all sorts of things. Um, and there was a store at Harvard Square that sold Mary Mecco. It became a sensation here. So anyone who grew up in Cambridge, I have many friends that did all their houses were like, oh, Mary Mecco. And their moms <laughs> were like wearing Mary Mecco dresses and whatever. So it's especially so prevalent here. It. Even though I'm like from New York, but somehow I moved here and I learned all this. Um, so, okay. So this dress, um, it's orange and black kind of like a really bold, I describe it as a flower print, but it's almost not. It's kind of like a weird abstract print, almost as if like someone took jellyfish and like smushed them on black um, <laughs> to form this design. And it's a Love big, that description. big, big print. Um, and the dress kind of has like, I'm going to stand up, has like these kind of like- Oh, big, I love the sleeves. Batwing sleeves. You can yeah. see my bra through the edges of it, yeah. which I didn't realize when I bought it. And it's like a voluminous <laughs> dress um that comes with a sash and you kind of cinch it in so it has a waist um and it almost looks like once you cinch it in the bottom almost looks like kind of like a 1950s circle skirt um and it's really a beautifully engineered dress it has these like cross seams across the chest Mm -hmm. which sounds bad but like they somehow work to like streamline your your the dress, right, actually, not your right. body, but even though it's a voluminum, a voluminous dress, it kind of it has structure it to it. And it does have, yes, it's like a piece of art, actually. It really it is. is. Yeah, it's it beautiful. really yeah. is. And, um, and so, so it's made of cotton, like a kind of light cotton, but not that light. And it is a dress that I have worn in all seasons. And so, I'll just tell you the backstory of the dress okay. and why I chose it. I mean, the real reason I chose it there are a few reasons, but one is that it's the dress that I've probably worn more than any dress in my closet. I had another dress when I was in my twenties that I wore until it disintegrated. Mm -hmm. And that's the only other dress that I've ever owned like this, where, you know, you always read like, I don't know, on like, like the J crew website, I almost said catalog, which really ages me. Like, here's the catalog. 
the cat i know i meant like the tweet where is the catalog, catalog? <laughs> right yeah. i want that the, back the, the guys the in the catalog were the cutest boys ever when i was a they teenager were... i was like i want to date a j crew model oh god i was like i want to <laughs> i didn't i growing up in new york i actually was not aware of j crew until i yeah. went to college and then there were all these like prep school kids yes yeah at my college um who all had all this like, like the J Crew roll neck sweater, the, the roll neck, the 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 roll neck sweater, and the barn jacket. Yes, the barn jacket. Yes. Well, I went to in, prep in school. So, right, I went to prep school, so I was introduced to it early. And one of my like, it was like the greatest day of my life when I when I bought the um the white J Crew turtleneck with like the rugby stripe across it. <gasps> yes. That was a big deal. Yes. Okay, we digress. I, we digress. Yes, we digress. <laughs> I have to tell you though that like in college so I was like kind of like a vintage wear like this is in the 90s like vintage all vintage combat boots you know like velvet motorcycle jacket my hair dyed black sort of kid but I got to college and like everyone had those roll neck sweaters and I was like I need that (laughs) and my parents had given me a credit card for books um that I was only supposed to use for books Uh uh-oh and I totally ordered that sweater in gray. Nice. nice. Yeah. And it's wore versatile. it with like my vintage. I yeah. love it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So you always read like in marketing material, like here's a dress that you can wear for anything, like wear it to work, you know, with kitten heels and then wear it out to a party, you know, with red lipstick. Like you always read that, but it's really not true for most things. Like, you know, if you're like work in an office as I did like I was the editor-in-chief of a magazine or whatever and I not or whatever but I was like I don't know why I'm undercutting myself and I you know had to look professional I managed a whole team of people a lot of whom were older than me I had to go to like big meetings with advertisers and publishers and whatever and um I I had to look grown up like Mm -hmm. and the stuff Mm -hmm. that I wore for that like I would never have worn to a party or out to dinner. Like I got home and I was like, get this off me, you know? So, but this dress point is that this dress really is that. Um, And so that's number one. Like I bought it and I'm, I I think I have to tell you guys the story of the origin story of the dress, but I bought it. um, And I don't know what I was thinking when I bought it. Um, I was a little bit like, why did I just buy this dress? Um, Because it was very expensive, like more than I normally spend on things as a person who like grew up, you know, like only shopping sales and buying lots of thrift store clothing. And um, like, I don't think my mother has ever paid retail for anything. And (laughs) um, I just bought this at like a very expensive shop, which I'll tell you about more in a second. Um, And was like, I just bought this orange, like, crazy dress what am I going to do with it and then it turned out to be the thing that I wore the most and I did wear it in you know every possible situation I um I wore it to like buy a whole apartment full of furniture at Ikea like I I bought so I feel like I should explain before we go too far that I bought this dress right before I started the process of getting divorced. Um, I lived in New York okay. on the Lower East Side and I I don't know where I was in the process, but I knew that I was leaving my husband as I wanted to do for like our entire marriage um, and that I was going to um, be reunited with um, 
uh, with my college boyfriend. Um, and wow. who I'd been in touch with for like this yeah. whole time and had, you know, wanted to do this, but just felt like ethically that it was the wrong thing to do. And then something snapped in me and I was like, I can do it. And um, he's a character in the My Salinger Year book and film. Um, in the film, he's called Carl. Um, the college boyfriend. The college boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. Wow. In the yeah. book. Oh my God. I love the knowing that. Boyfriend. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so during this period, that's when I bought this dress. Um, and I, you know, I wore it when I think maybe the first time I wore it actually was in the spring of 2013 when I came, I, I rented an apartment to move into with my kids. Um, once they finished school, um, at the end of June and I came up here to basically like furnish this entire apartment. So I, I spent a day at Ikea. I wore it for that, which <laughs> like, amazing. for me, that's like going to battle. Um, yeah. and I think it that. bolstered me. Yep. Um, but it was also, it's also really comfortable. Like it's not binding in any way, even though it has a shape. Um, and I wore it like to, um, court when it, my divorce became like very acrimonious. My yeah. husband took out, my ex-husband took out like a whole thing against me and I had to go to court and it was very scary because I'm a rule following law abiding person and I like even in school I never got in trouble once and I was like I'm going to court I'm a criminal and <laughs> it happened to be like 105 degrees that day and I had actually picked out this very grown-up like sheath dress and like a pair of heels and I talked to the lawyer that I then had to get after this and he was like you just need to be comfortable because we're going to be there all day it's really hot and so at the last minute, I put on this dress and a pair of sandals and I got to court and I was like, do I look okay? And he was like, you look perfect. You know, like you look exact. You're not trying too hard. You look great. You look like um, a law abiding like, citizen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But you also, but you also felt a lot of confidence, right? Because you were where it was like this protective armor. This dress had, had been with you. And I love that. Yeah. And so, and then I also wore it in so many other situations. Right. So a year after that, my, my Salinger year, which is my second book came out mm-hmm. and um, like a tiny bit of backstory with it. Um, you guys described it in my bio. It says it's an international bestseller, which I guess is a fact. Um, however, when <laughs> yes, I it is. Um, sold <laughs> we only book, read facts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> real. This is this real. Is re- <laughs> This is not fake news. No, this it's is true. This is true. It's true. It's true. It has yeah. 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 In, in essence, like I am a novelist and I write pretty like big, long social novels. Like mm-hmm. I think of them as kind of like George Eliot-esque, like not that they're as good as George Like a Eliot, fortunate age, right? Like, like a fortunate like age, exactly. They're big, yeah. big novels. That took me six years to write. And she was kind of like, just think of this as like a brief little thing, you know? And my editor um, like basically said to me, like, I- I'm not kidding. Like said, no one is going to read this book. You know, this is a, in quotes, small book. 
And I had all these like marketing and publicity meetings where people were like, yeah, we see this as a niche book. Like only people in New York and in publishing are going to read this. And you would think that I would be upset about this, but I actually wasn't. I was like, okay, that's fine. Like I'm a novelist. Right. I don't care if people read right. this. It's you fine. had a story. Right. You had a story to tell. It didn't matter. Joanna, right. I'm sorry. Can you back up for our listeners and just briefly um, talk about like what my Salinger year is about and the experience you lived in the nineties that was the story behind my Salinger year? Cause it yeah, is fascinating. Totally. And I think Stephanie and I, you were all of a similar age and the whole nineties, like, I think I said, when I first met you, I felt like I could have run into you on the street in the city. I was working in publishing in the nineties to wearing similar clothes to you. So, yeah. so <laughs> yes, fascinating. We're all wearing the block heel loafers. Right. Oh, yeah. yes. I mean, were. I, like, I, I, a Harlequin sheets. I mean, I had no access to J.D. Salinger like you did, but can you tell us what was going on in your life and your job and then what prompted you to write the book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, um, at age 23, I really kind of stumbled into a job at New York's oldest and most storied literary agency. Um, they're kind of the original literary agency. They represented not just J.D. Salinger, but, you know, Dylan Thomas, Agatha Christie, Hmm, heard of them. Gerald, you, know. you know, a huge, <laughs> huge um, Langston Hughes, like really the major writers of the 20s. Um, no big deal. No big deal. Yeah. No like Harold Ober, the founder, kind of invented the idea of literary agenting before that. Writers just kind of signed contracts with publishers. And, um, you know, he kind of invented this idea that there could be an advocate for a writer who could kind of watch out for them and get them more money and what have you. Make sure they weren't taken advantage of by publishers. And so, um, so I stumbled into this job. My boss was the president of the company. I, this is, was 1995, the end of 1995 when I got this job. So there was obviously the internet, but I didn't even have internet access in my apartment. Most people didn't at that time. Mm -hmm. It was like dial-up modem. Oh, yes. Yeah. We we all know the sound of that. AOL. I had an AOL account. (laughs) Wait, you know what? I didn't even have an AOL account at that point. Did I? I may have, but it was like, if I did, I checked it. Like, Consider yourself lucky, I guess. And the right? email yeah. addresses were like curlyhairgirl at AOL.com, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm realizing I did have an AOL account and it was like JMR, like 84257, blah, blah, blah. Right. At AOL. Very easy to remember. Yeah. 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 Yes. And so, um, so I couldn't, you know, now a kid would just like Google everything and find out everything about the agency. I didn't even know what a literary agency was. Um, and which was not that weird at the time, actually, if you didn't grow up in that kind of cultural milieu. And so um, I took this job and then found out afterwards that Salinger, you know, was a client of the agency and was also my my actual boss's client. And a lot of my job was going to be answering his fan mail, protecting him from... Mm. Wow. not just fans, but like anyone, like producers mm-hmm. wanted to develop Catcher in the Rye, people who wanted access to him, which is a lot, mm-hmm. was a, a lot of people. I can um, imagine. Any other jobs too. Um, and it was, I was told when I took the job that I would never have any access to Salinger myself, you know, that if he called, he would be put through directly to my boss. Um, who in my mind is Sigourney Weaver, by the way. Yes, right. he really does an incredible um, <laughs> interpretation. Of my, she met my boss as research for the role yeah. and she was incredible. That's awesome. And, that. um, and 
Um, that turned out to not be true um, because Salinger decided during that year that he wanted to publish a new book in a very unorthodox way. And so suddenly, unlike as he had not really ever, like maybe in the 1950s, he was in touch with the agency every day, but definitely since the 60s, he had not had this kind of contact with the agency. Suddenly he was calling every day. And it also just so happened that my boss had a really extreme personal tragedy during this time. And she was out of the mm. office for months. And I was charged with pretending that she was still there, um, which was a common thing at the time. You know, now I just feel like now the world is so open. Like now right. if you're the assistant mm -hmm. to some powerful person, you could be like, oh, her husband died or whatever. But then people did not want you to know things like that. And there were mental health issues involved. Not my boss had no mental health problems, but with this tragedy, there were, and that was still seen as kind of taboo. Mm -hmm. And people were like embarrassed of taking Prozac at the time. Like it was a different era. And so I was charged, I was constantly saying to people, oh, she's in a meeting. Oh, she just stepped out to lunch. <laughs> and I had to kind of take over her work and I had to pretend all this stuff with Jerry too. So Jerry the is JD Salinger. Jerry. Yeah. Wow. So your pet, your pal, Jerry. It chronicle my the book chronicles that year, um, and it's now that I'm describing it for you, um, I'm like, wait, what? Why did they think no one would read this book? But they did. It's amazing. It, it reads like a a movie, really. The whole story. Yeah, and the thing that actually, I really never thought about this why what is wrong with me but I actually sold the movie rights to it um in an auction just based on the proposal for the book but even though it was being turned into a movie my publisher still was like no one's going to read this book like we're not going to print that many copies you're not going on tour and then like I mean I would say like about 10 months before publication mm -hmm. it became pretty clear that that was not the case Wow. And um, that there was a lot of interest in it. And I was actually like, I got this call one day in August before the book came out. This actually relates to this dress <laughs> saying like, hey, um, our sales conference is happening. Like, I don't know, like the next week or in a few days, I had very little notice. Um, and all of our sales reps all over the country really want you to come and like we don't see stuff like this that often like usually we decide which authors are going to sales conference and it's like famous people you know like sometimes they'll have a debut novelist who they think is going to be big but often it's like people who are already famous you know it's like Jennifer Weiner or whoever like to talk to the salespeople about their book but what happened in my case was that the sales reps read the book and were like can you bring her? And this is what I was told. Like, is this true? I don't know. I guess I'm assuming it is. I've never questioned it. And I guess what happened is that they also had been circulating it and talking to booksellers about it. And the booksellers were really excited about it. So um, I think that this actually happens much more nowadays. Like the power mm -hmm. of independent booksellers is much more widely known and social media is so influential. Um, but then this was like unusual. And they were like, so can you come down for this? And I was like, okay and I was shocked because I was led to believe that like this was this tiny book that was going to just be like dumped you know I don't know in like a dumpster somewhere like no one was going to read it and so I had very little time to figure out what to do 
And they also, again, because they thought no one was going to read this book, I was being brought into this meeting in like the least glamorous way possible. Like they were like, so we're going to fly you down that morning at like 5 a.m. And then we'll fly you back, you know, right after the luncheon. <laughs> Whereas like, like another writer who was coming in was um, Karen Russell. The no She's like a very literary novelist. Mm -hmm. She's very famous. She writes like somewhat experimental fiction, but she's like a very big deal writer. And, um, you know, she was brought in in like a very lovely style and like put up at a hotel, whereas they were like, we're going to spend $1 bringing <laughs> right. you here. Cause like, this is, there's going to be no payback for this. Like we didn't ask for this. So I had to like take this plane down to actually like Newark and then take this like yeah. 50 billion hour, like cab ride like through traffic and I arrived and again it was like August it was like 100 million degrees out in New York and smelled like garbage and I um wore this dress I was yes. like what can I wear yes. I That's love amazing. it I love it like it's not going to be it's wrinkled now because it was in this box but I was like what can I wear that's going to look dressy but not too dressy where I won't be hot and, you know, I'll look put together and I can wear it on the plane and sleep if I need to. And right. the only my closet that fit all of that was this dress. So I, this yeah. is amazing. We love a cozy plain dress. We love a cozy plain dress, but I just, I love that you keep going back to this dress for all of these important moments in your life. I have a pair of earrings like that, which right. for all, for all of my most difficult meetings that I would have, they're huge door knocker earrings and I would wear them because they were my armor. They got mm. me through the hard meetings. So anyway, I'm on the edge of my seat. Keep going. <laughs> I want this I'm so, it's funny that I'm on a podcast called Life's Accessories because yeah. I don't know how to accessorize. Like I didn't even own a belt for until pretty recently <laughs> when a friend of mine who's actually like a film wardrobe person who does my tailoring for me, she was like, Joanna, you need a belt. And I was like, oh, what kind of belt? And she was like, here are the belts that you need to have in your closet. And so I just did what she said, but I've still not worn them. Like I almost never put on earrings. But I like, you know just always forget. Funny if I can comment about somebody who over accessorizes, but I'm okay with it. Um, <laughs> I find that your fashion, just from knowing you and your amazing Instagram and people should go follow you on um, your Instagram, which is Joanna Rakoff. You have your accessory is your clothing really. Yeah. And yeah. I guess it was, was it during COVID where you sort of made this conscious effort to wear dresses every day? Yeah. And you would post pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, during the pandemic, um, you know, for the first month or so of lockdown, um, I just wore my normal clothing. Like I'm a person who gets relatively dressed up every day, right. like not always in dresses. I wear a lot of like, and I have before this was trendy. Um, if my friend Lauren Sandler is listening, she's probably laughing because she knows this. Like, even Hi, Lauren. <laughs> even when people wore low-rise jeans like I was wearing high-waisted uh -huh. um, like uh -huh. almost like 70s style jean trousers and high-waisted like black wool pants that's always been my thing like even in high school that was my thing um my it was my mom's thing too and um my mom has amazing fashion sense and you always has and that's one thing that I took from her and um, and so I often would wear, you know, pants. Um, I don't even own that many pairs of jeans, you know. Um, there, I've gone through periods of life where I've not owned jeans and not owned sneakers even, except for mm -hmm. running shoes because I'm a runner. Um, and and then um, at a certain point in the pandemic, things for me got 
hard, like as they did for lots of people. Um, and I, I kind of like, I would have whole days, including my birthday in 2020, which I still think of as one of the worst days of my life it was May, 2020, where I couldn't even get dressed as in I was wearing like pajamas and a bathrobe all day or like pajama light clothing, you know, mm -hmm. like, like my maternity, like yoga pants from like literally 2005 yeah. from the gap that I somehow still have. Like I was wearing that and like a tank top without a bra and like, and like with my hair with like a pencil stuck in it. And it really was making me feel horrible. And so I made this decision. Um, it was a, a bit after that. Um, I think it was actually a year later. So this narratively, if this were a novel, it would make no sense. But a year later for my birthday month, May, 2021, um, I decided to wear a dress every day. Um, and I didn't chronicle all of it on Instagram, but I did chronicle some because I'm terrible at taking pictures of myself or asking people to take pictures of me. Well, I loved, um, I loved looking at the pictures. I chronicled as much as I could. And That's it was really fantastic. interesting, like what dresses people liked and what dresses they yeah. didn't. And, um, and so um, it was an interesting experiment and it, it really did bolster my spirits um, in many ways. And the chronicling it on Instagram um, was actually life-changing because it made me mm. feel kind of, much less alone than I had throughout the rest mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I made mm -hmm. friends through it, mm -hmm. actual friends who I now, you know, text back and forth with and talk to on the phone. Um, and it was fun and exciting. Um, and it changed the way I got dressed too. Like I really never have those days now where I'm just like in pajamas, no matter what's happening. And if I do, my husband is like, oh my God, get dressed and take a shower. <laughs> I know that there's something wrong that you're feeling. <laughs> bad yeah. um so yeah um so this dress I'm realizing I should return to this dress and tell you like the rest of its origin story yes um the which dress I'm could be a I movie this, okay. I, seriously well I okay. want to hear the rest of the dress but before we go I just can I can you before you go tell us about the dress but we also want to hear a little bit about your forthcoming memoir and the story behind it which I know is a very crazy story oh, but yes. But tell us, bring us back to the dress if you want. Okay, so here's the origin story of the dress. Um, and then I'll just tell you like blanket statement, like what this dress has done for me, um, which I was new, even before you guys asked me this, this was how I thought of this dress as like similar to um, how you described those earrings. Maybe not even, I think I maybe wasn't thinking of it as armor, but that is accurate. I think I was thinking of it more as kind of almost like a I don't know, like a magical garment, like good, good omen garment. Yeah. Right? Sort yes. of. Yeah. Or like a talisman yeah. sort of thing, or also yes. maybe like a kind of comfort item Yes, um, that I would reach for whenever I was in, you know, any kind of nerve wracking situation. Like the, I wore the, it to the self-soothing dress. <laughs> yeah. I wore it to a lot of events for my calendar year. So if you do a Google image search for me, mm. oh, so you told a me. lot of, yeah. Of images that. and I can send you guys some photos. Um, I had one really nerve-wracking event that I'm not gonna talk about because it involved other people and other people making me nervous. Um, mm -hmm. and I wore it to that, even though it was like in the fall and cold out, I just put on tights and boots and I had a blazer mm -hmm. over it, um, which I took off eventually because I got sweaty because I was really nervous and I was like drenched in sweat. Um, you know, I I wore it to so so many things. I 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with the group Binders, you probably are, which is like a women's, a, a women's writers group. Um, and when it was initially organized, they asked me to kind of do an endorsement photo for them. And um, it was like me and I think 10 other writers. And so I wore this dress for it because I was like, this is my, and there's a picture of me holding a binder um, in this dress. Um, okay, so, but to go back to the actual origin of this dress, how I ended up with a dress in a color that I absolutely hate and never wear and um, <laughs> think looks bad on me. And it doesn't for the it record. It looks great well, on you. Well, I now yeah, it's a great color. I, right. I now like orange, but I really <laughs> hated it for most of my life. Um, and in a bold print, something I also never wear, like I, um, you know, I, as you guys might may have seen, like I really like prints, but I usually wear kind of like small flower prints. I'll mm -hmm. occasionally wear something that is bolder, but I do find in my closet, like I have a dress um, that friends are always telling me they love um, that is from a design, a French design label that I absolutely love. I own actually a lot of the dresses It's called Bash. And um, it's a dress, it's gorgeous. It's like a 40s style dress. The tailoring in it is amazing. It's really like, it looks incredible. It reminds me of like, I don't know, like what like Lorelai and Rory wear in the like swing dance episode of Gilmore Girls. Like it's so amazing. Great and reference. So well. um, and um, yeah, any podcast I do, there's going to be a Gilmore Girls reference. So, um, but I never Clearly. wear it because it's a bold graphic. It's black and white print and so not me. So if it were like blue and white, maybe I'd wear it, but I just, bold prints are not me, but here's the story. So in, I lived on the Lower East Side for my whole adult life, pretty much after a brief stint in Williamsburg, my family is from the Lower East Side. I didn't grow up there, um, but my dad and my entire paternal family um, all over the Lower East Side, they've been there for at this point, like 120 years. Um, I, you know, like my family is so enmeshed with the Lower East Side that I would walk down the street and people would be like, oh my God, your grandmother was my piano teacher or my Hebrew teacher. Oh my God, your grandfather <laughs> was my dentist. Like that kind of thing. And I inherited the apartment that um, my dad grew up in and a building that my grandparents actually built, like a union workers building. So it was really enmeshed in my neighborhood, which was a very old school part of the Lower East Side. Like there is not a trendy, cool part of the Lower East Side where there are like you know, hundred dollar plate restaurants or like hip shops. It was not that, it was not like Orchard Street. It wasn't that part of the Lower East Side. And um, then over my time there, the neighborhood really started to change and the hip part started to change too. And um, a shop opened pretty close to my apartment um, that it was like the closest shop to my apartment that was this tiny shop and I was like what is this because it looked amazing like and unlike anything really in Manhattan like had a more Brooklyn sort of vibe to it and um so I went in and the owner um I don't want to say she was like my clone but we really resembled each other like she had um super curly hair that was like in the same style as mine and we're the same size she was she actually described herself as being like the one size bigger version of me because she was like a little <laughs> taller and like you know we were like the same shape but she was yeah. just like one size bigger yeah. and we had like a similar energy people like would sometimes ask us if we were sisters um intriguingly like I'm Jewish and she I don't can't even remember like is she like half Libyan her name is Ashley Hanush you can look her up she's incredible and so she um we just instantly loved each other and I loved everything in her shop 
we had the exact same taste. Um, and she had been a stylist, you know, for photo shoots, like for fashion magazines and films and whatever, and just decided she was tired of that life because it's really, it can be really brutal, like 24 hour a day shoots and whatever. And um, she opened a shop instead. So it was all, you know, a bit out of like a writer's price range. Like everything was kind of like, so this is, you know, more like 2007, I want to say. Okay. With this, maybe like 2008, 2009. Actually, that's probably more accurate. Um, it was all a little bit too expensive for me. So I would like buy a lipstick there, mm -hmm. you know, or like I would try I do that on and be like, <laughs> yeah. ah, and then feel really bad that I wasted Ashley's time. Yeah. Um, and you're like, you I'll know, buy a handkerchief. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, and then eventually, um, you know, she had a sale and I bought a couple of dresses that I absolutely loved. I wore them like on the tour for um, my, my first book. I wore them a million, million times. One of them just died. The other one I still have, but it's like in the process of dying. Um, I, I still wear it all the time. And so that's where this dress came from. And basically everything from that shop um, was like me to like the hundredth degree. It was like me on steroids kind of, because Ashley, you know, was a true fashion person and, and, um, and knew all of these kind of like more avant-garde designers. And so whenever I went in there, she would kind of like push me a little bit. And with this dress, you know, I saw it and I was drawn to it. And I said to her, you know, I love that, but like, I don't, think I can wear that kind of color and she said oh that kind of color is exactly what you should be wearing like that is exactly your color Thank and you Ashley um, yeah yes and she was like here and so I tried it on she actually gave me another dress in a similar color um from um a, a designer I love called Tracy Reese um, there was like an orangey red. I tried them both on and she was like, oh my God, you are transformed. And I was, and I bought the dress and obviously I'm wearing it now. And basically the end of the story is that it made me think, and I've thought about this so much over the years about the ways in which a piece of clothing like fashion is often considered trivial, right? But I don't believe it is. I believe it's actually hugely important. Um, and we would agree, hence the podcast. Yeah. Yes, and like how who we are, how we present ourselves to the world. I think people have come around to this after seeing how bad it felt to wear sweatpants for a year. Yes. Um, but uh, this dress being something so different than my normal sort of like somewhat more understated vibe just made me rethink who I was. Like it helped me leave my first husband and move into a life that was happier. It helped me, you know, have the strength to sort of be alone with my children for a year in a new place and forge a whole new life for ourselves. It helped me travel all over the country and travel all over the world, speaking to like 700 people, you know, in like Germany, you know, um, and like just have the confidence to do things that I had never done before. Um, and it really was like wearing something that was like, in quotes, not me, allowed me to realize that I didn't have to be the person 
that I always had been, right? Like, so I initially said like, oh, I'm such a rule following person. And I don't know if following the rules had always served me Hmm. super well. This is amazing. I don't know if being the good student had always served me super well. And so breaking my own rules for what I could wear and should wear and wanted to wear and the rules about like what colors looked good on me, like, okay, I'm just going to like, like tiny divergence here. Like you guys, because we're the same age, I'm sure you remember color me beautiful. Um, I'm like seasoned. And so my mom, like every woman in America. Are you fall or winter? So I am actually, um, it turns out like I am a summer. Oh, interesting. Which is like similar to being a winter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I I don't know what I am, but I like, I don't either. I like fall clothes the best. I'm you guys, I can tell you what you are. Oh, what are we? Us. What are we? Okay, so Stephanie, you are a winter. Oh, you're you're like a classic winter. Now, <laughs> so winter. Whole, like, color theme, they would probably call you a moonlit winter. Oh, um, that sounds enthralling. I love that. Yeah, you can Google this and look at your palette, and you'll be I'm like, "Oh, to. I do look really good in royal blue." And Rachel, I think that you are probably um, like, I I think that you're like. Um, a soft autumn, um, ooh, which is like ooh. on the cusp of spring and fall. I could see that. I like that. Because you have like somewhat more golden <laughs> tones. Mm. So um, I'm not going to ramble on about this, but the idea is like that if you have a slightly warmer skin tone and there's not that much contrast between like your eyes and hair and skin, then you're in autumn. Mm. Um, if you have a lot of contrast, then you're more um, of a spring. And, and then if you have sense. a cool complexion, like Stephanie, you and I do, obviously, like you can see, like I'm very white-ish looking, yeah. white pink, like paper white, then you're a winter or summer. There's my little color me beautiful lesson. I love, I love it. My I love mom, it. I grew up like with my mom actually saying to me, like, you can't wear orange. That's for people <laughs> who have golden skin tones. But so breaking that rule, um, and which it turns out is not true, actually. Like anyone can wear any color. It just has to be like, it just has to look, I don't know. Anyone can wear any color. Um, but you came into your own, own in that dress though. You came what? into your own, you came into your own in that dress. Yes, I mean, exactly. And it maybe like special power. Whatever I want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I have chills. I know. Wait, Seriously. I feel like we could talk to you forever. And I know it's a longer story, but and you mentioned your mom. Is there a way you can sort of tease our listeners with the story behind the story of your forthcoming um, memoir, because it's yes, I can give you the, yeah, the, the listeners are going to be like, wait, there's another, she's lived another <laughs> remarkable life. Cause you've lived like a million lives. Yeah. I don't know. But so um, my new book is called the fifth passenger. Um, I'm turning it in, in May. So like knock on wood that I, no one in my family gets COVID again and I can do that. Um, and um, the, premise of the book is this. Um, It explores a sort of horrible, tragic family secret that really did define my life and made me who I was without my realizing it, as is so often the case with family secrets. Um, Mm -hmm. Essentially, the story is that I grew up um, believing I had one sister who was 18 years older than me and largely out of the house in my early childhood, um, who was a little bit more of like a distant aunt to me. Um, And then um, I discovered 
that there had been, I was in middle school, basically, I discovered by accident that there had been two kids in between us who um, I didn't know what happened to them. They just disappeared. They magically mm -hmm. disappeared before I was born. Mm -hmm. um, over the years that followed, little tiny bits and pieces would come out. I would overhear conversations um, and, you know, hear a reference to the accident um, when my mom was talking to her friends. There's a lot, a lot of hushed conversations, conversations that stopped when I went into the room. And um, eventually, as an adult, I discovered that they had been killed in a car accident um, and <sighs> felt like potentially my surviving sister was involved. It's not wasn't clear. And so in this book, The Fifth Passenger, um, I um, it's framed by my life now. Um, here in Cambridge with my children, my husband, Kirill. Um, so it's a little bit of a sequel to my Salinger year. Um, mm -hmm. It's also framed by something that I suspect many people can relate to, which is um, my subsisting on no sleep because my third child, who's now almost seven, like does not sleep. And that actually led me to decide that I wanted to investigate this story, this kind of being awake in the night and just having a lot of time mm -hmm. to think. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's framed by me now. I go back and report out the story. I go back to my hometown, which is Nyack, New York, in the Hudson River Valley. I interview a zillion people um, mm -hmm. and do all sorts of research into police records and what have you and try to tease out the story. Um, and then it tracks back and forth between that and my life growing up in this kind of haunted house yeah. um, and my um, sister's life, um, I, I sort of also attempt to uncover what happened to my sister who has led a kind of tragic life mm. um, and to try to tease out whether this accident was caused by her you know by her inclinations and what was going on in the world in the 70s mm -hmm. kind of her um involvement with kind of countercultural elements which was a big part of the story that I didn't mm. know it was going to be a big part of the story um or whether you know that caused this the accident which then led to her kind of having this particular life mm -hmm. um or whether the accident led to her kind of downfall to use a word that's not in any way accurate that led to right. sort of a lot of the really awful stuff that happened and also the ways in which my parents were implicated in both this accident and my wow. sister's difficulties as an adult so wow wow was it was it therapeutic for you do you still have open questions you know, so I'm not done reporting the okay. book. Um, the reason it's taken me a pretty long time to write it, um, mm -hmm. in part because of the pandemic. I was supposed mm -hmm. to turn it in June 2020, um, and I actually had two different residencies, one at McDowell, one at a colony called Ragdowell, lined up, and I was going to just kind of hunker down and finish it. And I had trips planned to finish my reporting in um, April 2020. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I had we know what the happened first... there. Yeah, I know. What? Right. Why am I not done? What? Right. I don't. There's some like maybe some tiny world event. Um, and I, I had also taken time off beforehand actually to write the my sound or your screenplay and make that film, which was pretty time consuming. But um, but so I I did actually spend more than a year promoting the My Salinger Year film, which for mm -hmm. non-writers, like it's basically a full-time job. Um, I'm still doing promotion for it. 
um, in a minor way. And I'm actually just now returning to finishing up the reporting. Um, and has it been therapeutic? You know, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I'm not really a person. And I know this is like actually contrary to the predominant idea right now, but I'm not a person who believes in writing as therapy. Like I'm really a fiction writer and a journalist mm -hmm. and I'm not really a memoirist. Like I wrote my Salinger year pretending it was a novel. Um, I had a sign over my desk that said, this is a novel. You are a character. And that was the only way I could write it by having wow. that distance yeah, from myself. Awesome. Like I didn't want it to be a book that was like, and he, oh, I felt this and way. And then this happened. Right. 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 I wanted it to have a story and an, a narrative arc. And that's how I'm trying to treat this book. Um, it's a little bit more complicated though. Um, because the story is more complicated and it is much more fraught for me. Um, and I'm writing about things that were really traumatic for people very close to me. And it's hard to do. I, I don't feel like it's been therapeutic. It actually has been kind of really difficult and gut-wrenching yeah. and you know, hard. And I find myself for the first time in my life, I love writing. I'm not a writer who's like, I don't want to sit down and write. Like I love getting to my desk and writing. But with this book, I've been like, oh, I don't want to do this because it's just hard. Mm, yeah. But it's been that's good. Amazing. It's fascinating to hear you talk hard about it. Doesn't mean yeah. that it hasn't been good. It's been right. really good right. to try to figure out what happened yes no I can't imagine I can, I'm never going to know the whole truth because every person I talk to tells me a different story Interesting. Um, but I am going to know some semblance of the truth and that mm -hmm. it's never good to not know the truth does that make any it makes it makes 100 sense double negative it actually like, makes perfect sense to me john yeah. if i could bring it back to life's accessories i i wrote a memoir called life's accessories which is kind of how this podcast came to be in a way and it is it is a memoir it's a collection of essays about my life um and i use an accessory to tell each story and when i was on the book tour for that right before the pandemic every people would say, has writing it been therapeutic? And I'd be like, yes, it was so therapeutic. And, but you know what? It actually wasn't. I'm realizing now that it was not therapeutic. It was hard. It was yeah. really hard. And that's okay that it wasn't therapeutic. But, and I, and maybe if I could predict this for you and I can't wait to read this book and I'm mm. sure it's going to get made into a movie and it's, and you're going to tour and it's going to be fabulous. And, but I do think um, sharing the story with the world and, and interacting with people will, will be so meaningful to you. I mean, can you even imagine? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, already there've been bits and pieces of the book um, that have been public, like as in I've written essays for anthologies that um, are, will be incorporated into the book um, or that led to my writing the book. There's one in particular for an anthology called Labor Day edited by Eleanor Henderson and Anna Solomon. It's an incredible anthology. It has like essays from people like Cheryl Strait in it. It's really good. But an essay I wrote for that touches on it. And that's kind of what led to my thinking, okay, I can really write this book. Um, and so people have read bits and pieces of it. And, you know, I've talked about it on two different podcasts, um, Danny Shapiro's Family Secrets and mm -hmm. Zibby Owen's Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm -hmm. And the response has been pretty crazy. Um, I The Danny Shapiro one, where I, I actually read from the book um, on it, is from a few years ago. I think it came out in 2019. I still get mail from it. I get and that. Wow. People still, you know, are, are like tweeting. Well, maybe hopefully they're not tweeting now, um, but 
before Elon Musk, they were tweeting like, oh my God, I just listened to this. And I was like, what, why are you listening to this thing from three <laughs> years ago? Like, but they, I think it just has res- resonated with people. And I get lots of people writing to me, t- telling me about things that happened in their family that I, are I still think about it, by the way, Incredible. for our listeners, check that out. Danny Shapiro's family secrets podcast with Joanna Rakoff and also Zibby Owens, moms don't have time to read books. And Zibby's going to be on our podcast. She's going to talk about a necklace. Yeah. So it all comes full circle. So um, are you going to wear the dress for this uh, new book tour? Is it too disintegrated? It's too disintegrated. um, But I think what I might do, I mean, can we have it made into something else? Like, I feel like we need to like recycle this and do something to it. Yeah. We need to bring it back in. (laughs) Or the other thing that I was thinking about doing um, is... um, and I know people who've done this, um, is taking it to, um, my tailor with new fabric, um, and just saying, Hey, can you copy this dress? It's a very simple design and having, you know, turn like having a new version of it made with a different fabric. Mm-hmm. I think if I had a new version made, I would have them seam this. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, wait, but- Stephanie. Should we, we're talking, you know, we have all these big pipe dreams for the, uh, for the podcast and we want to come up with our own life's accessories line of clothing and to sell. And so let's create the Joanna dress. We could. That would be crazy. And and it will be called the Joanna. Yes. (laughs) You know what is crazy? Um, the, so my sound year, the movie, um, the, costumes that Margaret Qualley wears in it are based on my actual clothing that I wore during okay. that time. Okay. Okay. And, um, and it's been, um, the response to it has been really extreme. So there's a whole world of fan art having to do with the costumes. Really? Um, all of Joanna, there are a couple of That's amazing. It's very nineties. Yeah. And you can now buy, um, copies of some of the clothing so you can buy like the joanna coat which is this what like hunter green or like a kind of like soft hunter green trench coat that's based on a suede coat of mine that i still wear that i've had since like 1994 um like a vintage suede coat and you can buy like a jean jacket that she wears that i actually had had since i swear middle school oh my goodness that's amazing oh my goodness yeah you can google it and find it it's really weird um my same friend that i mentioned lauren one day was like um are you aware of this and this link appeared in my text and i was like what and i honestly thought that it was a practical joke that's incredible and- that's absolutely it was amazing wow oh, this has been so I could, amazing I could, I could talk to you literally all day this is just incredible thank you guys you so thank you much. this is like a dream to have the chance to talk about clothing and its power I well I yeah. just am usually talking about it to myself in my head right well you can text us whenever you want we will be exactly. like Stephanie will- I'll be like I saw somebody with a crossbody bag today let's discuss yeah <laughs> so well you can be in our group text Oh my yes. God. Thank you. You've yes, made my day. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> can you just tell our listeners before we go where they can find you on social media or website or anything like that? Absolutely. My website is just my name.com. Um, and there's like interviews, like video interviews and stuff with me on there. If you're curious. Um, um, but I, on social media, I'm largely on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. and you can find me there. Um, talking about clothing and posting videos of my six-year-old doing really weird, like 
singing along to Taylor Swift in our living room and that kind of thing. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Joanna. What fun. It was such a pleasure. Thank and you, Joanna. Yeah. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and we will talk to you guys next time on the Life Successories podcast. Bye-bye everybody. Bye-bye.